Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing. This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be extra environmentalists. Always feel wherever you go that you are a stranger, the outsider, the one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. good when you make a promise no i'm not a doubting thomas but honey are you making any money that's all i want to know hello and welcome to the extra environmentalist i'm your host seth moser Katz, along with my co-host justin ritchie today on the extra environmentalist we're talking about complementary currencies on today's show we're going to be talking about open money systems and the ways that these open money systems can help you develop a complimentary currency for your community. And so we're going to be talking with Michael Linton from Vancouver Island, British Columbia, who started developing the Let's Currency System back when the money dried up in his community in the 80s on Vancouver Island. And so we're going to be learning about some of the ways that the Let's System has evolved, but we're also going to be talking about a new currency model, the Community Way Currency Model, that now people in BC are going to be working on implementing to help get community money out and in use even faster. So we see a lot of the challenges that are going on in European countries like Greece and Spain and Italy as the euro crisis continues to spread. And so if you're in a community in one of those countries, one of the things that you can start doing to facilitate local transactions is starting up a community currency that's even more complex than something like a time bank. Time banks are great and they're one way of facilitating exchanges in the community, but you really do need something a little bit more complex in order to facilitate the economies that it does take to sustain a community. These open money systems show a lot of promise for the ways that they can handle areas where money dries up and people can't do the things that they're used to doing uh, to get by in an area that just runs out of money. So before this gets any more complex, let's jump right into the episode and hear about using complementary currencies. You make dates and you make trains, I can get that through my head. It's a pinch in a pinch, you could make breakfast, even make the bed. Now you make good when you make a promise, no I'm not a doubting Thomas. But honey, are you making any money? That's all I want to know. Michael Linton, thanks for joining us today from the Comox Valley on Vancouver Island in British Columbia. You developed the first Let's Currency there a few decades ago, I believe. That's what we're here to talk about today, ideas around money, ideas of how credit systems can work through currencies and community and complementary currencies. Good. Yeah, it'll be a pleasure. Where'd you want to begin? I wanted to start out by asking how you first got involved in looking at money systems. I think you had a background in engineering. What was it that took you out of that into thinking about the way that money worked? Uh, a lack of it. Not just a personal lack. That was quite familiar. I started as an engineer, physics, did a business degree, a bit of um, psychology research. Then I was a school teacher. 
I didn't like that very much. That was very hard work. And then I became a, a teacher of Alexander Technique, which is rather exotic and very pleasurable process. A bit like Tai Chi, a bit like yoga. And I was in private practice, not making a lot of money, but happy. And then in Canada, bank rates went to 14% in 1982, central bank. So the chartered banks and mortgages were running at 18 19%. And, of course, that completely collapsed everything around here um, and basically across Canada. So a bunch of us sitting around and we had um, no money. Each of us were familiar with having no money. We were all marginal consumers in that respect. But when we started examining the fact that none of us had any money and that that was a systemic problem, well, we had to do something about it. And what we did was we, we sort of found a solution before we defined the problem. The problem didn't need a lot of definition. Damn it, no money, nothing happening around here. The solution was, well, you want wood, I need some fence fixed, your car needs to be repaired, she needs a massage, you know. You just saw all the the needs and wants and you tried to merge them together to find matching. Now, that was obviously going to be much more easy in a large community than small. You know, 20 people, you don't get many matches, but 200, 2,000, it's much easier. So we started off with a small sort of classified ad buy and sell notes board that we collected advertisements by phone. And those were printed up and circulated. But even a list like that doesn't solve the problems because how do you match, well, the babysitter and the brain surgeon would be the, uh, a problematic barter arrangement or double swap. Their, their services are so different. Yeah, and different in scale, different in time, different in appreciation of quality. Simplest thing is to have some sort of a measure, some sort of a money, some sort of a carrying credit. So we quickly realized, of course, we just got to create our own money. And, you know, we knew money doesn't really exist. It's just a form of sort of legal ticketing system tied into the tax base so that you get the government you pay for. And that's the life. So creating money didn't seem to be a problem, but creating money that made sense was. There's there's a guy called Chaim Minsky who was um, a Chicago economist, and one of his famous lines was that uh, creating money is very simple. Getting other people to accept it is the hard part. Now, we ran into that right away because we decided, yeah, we're going to have money. There's 30 of us in this network. There'll be 50 soon, etc. Now, how much should we all start with? And that raised all the problems. It was, okay, obviously, a thousand is too much, isn't it? Oh, yeah, far too much. Okay, 100. Oh, that's too little. So you try and find the right amount of money that you would decide to create out of thin air as a fiat currency. That's what we were thinking at the time. Just, you know, we'll declare that we have money and go. And we just couldn't find a balancing point that felt secure, safe, comfortable, that made the distinction between the dentist and the the single mother or whatever. And pretty quickly, we came down to the idea you start at zero because that's what we've got. And that totally transformed the appreciation of the situation. That when you start at zero and I buy something from you, Justin, then I go down 50 and you go up 50. Now, in our conventional world, we'd have said, oh, I borrowed 50 from you or something. Or the community allowed me the credit of $50 against it or something. But actually what happened is that I issued a promise, a form of IOU, just a form of IOU. And you've got it in your hand now, and you can go and spend it with Seth. Seth can spend it with somebody else and so on, because somebody is going to come back to me at some stage and say, hey, Michael, cut my hair or whatever. Now, it was that realization that starting from zero gave us autonomous, sovereign issuance of money by individuals. Inside a community of consent, each one of us is allowed to issue a promise 
to the community in general through a purchase with somebody else. So I'm down 50, Justin's up 50. Essentially, Justin's got 50 Michael dollars. Now, that becomes a very simple, interactive, load-spreading system that is stable in so many levels. I mean, it's not to say you can't crash a system like that, but it's rather difficult. And the history of community currencies in the last 30 years, let systems, time banks, things like that, have indicated that the basic idea of plus-minus round it goes, which is all we're talking about, money going round on a plus-minus basis amongst a set of consenting people, it's extraordinarily stable. It will survive almost anything except administrative idiots. Administrative idiocy has usually been the main cause of problems in community currency operation. That's a problem with centrally administered money systems that we use now, too. Well, it's basically a problem with all systems that people think require control when maybe they don't. You know, if you stick your fingers in the machinery, you might get them chopped off or you might just jam the machine. And the interventions that people bring to let systems, uh, community currencies in general, strike me very much like people trying to teach others to ride bicycles with books. I'm going to send you a book on a bicycle. We'll get on with it. Or, or you get on the bicycle, but you figure that it'll work better if, if it didn't sway from side to side and steer around. So let's freeze this, the steering. Let's make it go straight line. That'll be easier, obviously. Less to worry about, right? And better still, let's start stationary because if we can balance this bike stationary, then, well, no problem going forwards. Well, those are all semi-rational ideas, but they're totally disabling. And we've seen time and time again people's anxieties about how do we make sure it works, actually preventing it from being effective at any level. Right. Even so, it's been a matter of perception, adoption, confidence, and business participation in truth, because so much of our economy operates through the retailer, the restaurant, the car mechanic, the gas station. You know, we, we spend money in businesses. We don't often spend money on each other. And that's a matter of social training. It's a matter of patterns of trade. But if you try and start a system with the idea that it's just for people, you can't have businesses in it, you're dead in the water. And you'll never get any significant traffic in the process, and it'll always be a fringe benefit for nobody in particular. I wanted to explore that starting of a currency because you're basically willing this new currency into existence just with your mind or your group of people did. How do people accept the idea of a new currency? Did it take like a lot of devout believers to get it started, much like a political candidate or a new law? No, no, not at all. It just took um, a practical what's in it for me factor, you know, the WIIFM. People need to know when they make any transaction, be it a, a swap of this for that or a purchase of that with the other, that they can come out of it okay. Everybody's scared shitless of losing stuff. You see? So when I pass you the loaf of bread, I want something in return that's going to make me feel, oh, I got something useful for the loaf of bread. Now, that's often an interpersonal belief between two people. Not much more. It's a matter of confidence. It's a matter of expectation. It's a matter of, oh, sure, this works. It works for me. You try it. Hey. And we've found generally that the induction of people into a community currency is really quite simple. You just give them an option that seems to work quite nicely and isn't far different from what they're used to. It's a $5 bill. It's just it's a local $5 bill. It's not one of their $5 bills. It's one of our $5 bills. It will work in all these places. How about it? Now, at that level of analysis, most people seem to be quite reasonable about it. But the trouble is that if they ever lose confidence in that process... 
if they ever have reason to think, oh, this has all gone sideways, it's falling down, it's stopped, then they are desperately determined not to be the fall guy, not to be the person who's left feeling taken for a ride. Because the thing that people are most terrified about is being thought silly. They are silly, they're regularly silly, and they're taken for a ride regularly by con man advertisers, politicians, therapists, God knows who. But to be thought gullible is, is a terrible thing for most people. Don't like it at all. So if there's a hint that the system, whoa, isn't working, then people desert it immediately in groves. They just, oh no, I don't touch that stuff. Oh, that doesn't work. So it, there's a, an old line that the cat that sits on a hot stove will never do it again. But it won't sit on a cold one either, because what it's learned is actually inaccurate, but very deep. And as soon as somebody believes that the money that they've been playing with, this local currency, is messy, costly, fraudulent, complicated, it's wrong, it must be against God's will or something, as soon as they've conceived of that, they're very hard to uh, return to intelligent life. Very hard indeed. So the trick, we think, is that you don't start a currency on moral grounds or political grounds or ethical grounds. You start it on pure self-interest grounds so that a person who joins into it gains benefits, tangible, clear-cut benefits from the process and has some degree of assurance that they're going to persist. And that's rather like putting the kid on the bike and sort of walking them down the hill gently and then gradually letting them go because they found out how the bike balances but if they steer off into the trees, then they tend to blame the bike and everybody around, you know. Look what you've done to me. So a little education is useful. Miseducation is disastrous. Too much education doesn't help very much, just practical experience. It takes most people several years to have more than two or three transactions in most currency systems we've seen. They're too small, too marginal, too weird, and on the periphery. And it may take somebody many, many months to have any significant experience of what this money does and how it works. Whereas with normal money, people are spending it two or three times a day, more, more than that. So building a, a sort of a balance between what one offers versus what the other one offers is really tricky. And one of the things about this is, is the alternate word. As soon as you propose this as an alternate, either semantically or actually, people are thinking, oh, you mean we're going to replace the federal dollar with this? And, of course, that's, that's insanity. Uh, it, may, it may not be insanity as a long-range idea of some sort. I'm not going to discuss that. That's so far in the future is ridiculous. But in the short term, it would be absurd for somebody to think that they could decide to step away from the conventional money and into a community currencies. Some have managed a little bit for a while here and there, but it's not the general rule. For the general rule, it's here's something else that will help your money go further. Here's an augmenter, like a hamburger helper in a way. It allows you to get things going better. But it's not an alternate in the sense of either or. It's, oh, you, you, you like beer. Do you like this beer? No, that's not an alternate beer. That's another beer. Now, we've got to get people into the frame of mind that we're not telling them your ship is sinking, get off it quick and join us in the lifeboat because... That does not persuade anybody anything useful. What we've got to do is say, Let's, while this ship is uh, doing what it's doing, <laughs> do you want to try some swimming lessons, practice your boat skills, you know, try some of this, try some of that? And it should be multiple. Another of the biggest problems that people run into when they begin these processes is they bring one currency into their town, their neighborhood, which is a bit like saying we're going to start a dance hall, but there's only one form of dance you can do in there. 
and it's jumping up and down like a pogo stick or something. Or here you can have a computer. It has one program on it. Or I'm going to give you a telephone line, but you can only call me. The singularity is totally disabling. And if you start a currency in your town, one of the first things that will happen is some people will want it to be measured in dollars, and other people will want it measured in time as a different form of equitable transaction. And they'll fight each other until one side wins and the others go away. They still create a persona around the currency. So uh, when we first saw this in Australia, there were currencies that were started by the Mother's Church Union in one place and by the hip-hop punks in another. They had totally different characters. They were using exactly the same ideas. But of course, who would join the punks? People who like punks. In the other city, who would join the system? Not the punks. The mothers did. So a single system tends to create, well, it's like a, well, a snowflake on the sidewalk. It has no protection. It isn't inside a context. We like joining Facebook and having one group on it. I'm wondering what it was like when you were there in the Comox Valley and you first wrote down those initial IOUs, for example, or the first credits. Were you keeping them on notebook paper and how did people react to that no. system of, of having their services tracked like that, the debits and credits? What we did, we started off right away with an online banking system, um, on telephone line, that is. Uh, there was only one computer in town. It had eight-inch floppy disks, and we had time-sharing on that in part of our to-and-fro trading. The proprietor of the computer was giving us time on the computer for community money. So basically, we just ran a simple set of accounts on there, just in minus 14, Seth plus 14. That's all it is. So we ran a little database accounting program on a computer. Now, some people saw no difference between that and what they were doing in the credit union two doors down the street and the bank. And they were dead right. It's exactly the same, with the difference that in our system, the money was only spendable on others within it. So you had the closed loop. So for some people, that was just fine. For others, it was, oh, God, the instrument of the devil, a computer. Somebody's keeping records. The tax man will be on my neck and so on. So, again, you, you quickly get some phobic behavior from some people, but if the ones who are not blown away by the idea, not repelled by it, are satisfied with their first few transactions, then it rolls along very nicely. In our case, it was, it was really very easy. We got our first two, three hundred people in it, and, well, three hundred by the middle of the summer, six months. And then we got a dentist to join, and then that was it. That did it perfectly, because everybody needed their teeth fixed. And uh, here was a way you could do it with the community money instead of having to find cash for it. He loved it, because otherwise his practice would have been half empty. He'd bought a practice unwisely in the wrong place, and he found that he needed to fill the chair and keep his staff happy. So and dentists are the key to community currencies? Well, anything that's a tangible asset that people are nervous about, Basically, I put it down to beer and bread. Bread and circuses has always been the way that uh, a population is moved and maintained. And if in a community currency, you can offer people the necessities of life in some part for community currency so that your grocery bill is shaved so many hundred dollars a month in the cash side and is going that far in community money instead, then that's a significant benefit. So you go for the necessities, you also go for the luxuries. If my family's short of money, then we don't go out to a theater. We don't buy any art. We don't have massages. We don't buy handmade Christmas gifts from our artisan neighbors. But if we've got community currency, sure, because I can't take that community currency to the bank and pay my mortgage. So I'm not bound by the usual constraints and limitations that conventional money lays on us. I have more choices and more latitude and more comfort in it. 
I understand the community buy-in part. I understand that you need the community to have some solidarity behind a currency. But how does a government or somebody that's issuing like a federal money system feel about these local currencies going on? Do they come in and say, hey, what are you guys doing? You're not paying us taxes. What's going on here? Oh, well, that taxes thing, that would keep talking to Americans, they seem to get pretty primitive about taxation. The Americans are always thinking about taxes. <laughs> well, they say death and taxes are the only two things that you can rely on, right? I've, I've always figured that if Americans have a religion, it's money, enterprise, go get it. And if they have that religion, then they have the Inquisition. It's called the IRS. And you guys are scared to death of the IRS. And quite rightly, because they can be a royal pain in the ass. Now, in our position... Our first conference with government on this was with our provincial minister of finance, and we made it clear to him that we were not in a tax evasion or tax avoidance even. We actually relish the ability to pay taxes because taxes is what keeps the whole show going, you know, roads, rails, police, all that stuff. You've got to have it some level. You may have different opinions about how the money should be spent, but without a common taxation process, how does a community fiscally maintain itself? So we started off right from the beginning with no illusions about this being tax outside the tax frame. So from a government's point of view, we've never had the slightest kickback, no, no pushback anytime, any place, neither from the Treasury Board, who think we're trivial and irrelevant, they don't see us here at all. The tax people say, fine, more movement more taxation, and you're keeping records. That's good. The social security people, welfare, they're happy because it lifts a lot of the loads that the tax base can't currently carry. Now, not in any scale level at this point, but when these agencies take a look at us, the only thing they can say is, okay, seems like you're on the rules, go for it. Barter, for instance, in the U.S., principally in the U.S., supposed to be about $30 billion a year now. $30 $30 billion a year doesn't happen without something going on and without the tax authorities taking a lot of attention, as they have in the States, where barter transactions and some community currency systems are regulated by an IRS requirement that all transactions are posted to them immediately, which is not true in any other country in the world, by the way, it's just in the United States. I think the shortish answer to your question, and you'll very rarely get a short answer from me, but the short answer is no problem. So you were talking before we were discussing the IRS and taxes, you were talking about how people find that they are able to start doing things for each other, going and getting massages, et cetera, because they have this money that isn't necessarily scarce, like typical money that we use. What do you mean by money being scarce and how is it that a let system alleviates that? Well, it's the notion of money as a thing of value. To get sort of primitive about it, if you want my cow, I will give you my cow if you either give me a bag of wheat or something or you give me a precious metal coin. It's got to be a thing for a thing. Even when it's a coin, it's it's a gold coin. Please, please, a gold coin. You know? So what we get into in that framework is I've got some stuff. You want it. I'm not going to part with it until you give me some stuff. And money has emerged as instrument of transaction throughout the world on the basis that the money is valuable, you and I are not. So when you give me a loaf of bread and I give you a buck, you've now got the money. The money is the valuable stuff. 
your capacity as a bread maker, the relationship between us, very secondary. That all got cut off when you gave me the bread and I gave you the dollar. We have a nice alienated, you got it, I got it, we're over. And almost all of our money is based upon this theory then that there is only so much of it, otherwise it would be valueless. I mean, if we printed so much, it'd be ridiculous. So if we're going to have a currency that works across even a small region, never mind a nation, but if you're going to have a currency that's work across a largish area, it's got to be limited in supply, otherwise you get galloping inflation all over the place. And that means it's got to be issued by some authority structure to make sure that there aren't millions and millions of these units around. Now, that makes it into a limited amount of stuff that you, me, Joe, Mary, God knows who, are all competing for. And it's it's a juggling act with these quantities of stuff. Now, the pr- biggest problem with that is that it leads immediately to rich and poor. I don't know if you remember Pareto, Italian sort of theorist, economist, mathematician, I believe, about um, 100 years plus back, who figured that almost everything is on an 80-20 split, or maybe 70-30, sometimes 60-40. But basically, if you start off with everything evenly distributed, pretty soon it'll work itself into he's got more and you've got less. Think of it as a chessboard, 64 squares. You take 64 grains of rice, you drop them on the chessboard, If one went on every square, it would be equal, but they don't. And every square that has more means that there are many squares that have less. And that's what our conventional money does because it is of this, there is only so much, and if I've got it, you don't, and we've got to compete and fight for it. And inevitably, it turns us into competitive, fear-based, greed-driven freaks, especially when we form corporations. They're highly tuned to be fear-driven and greed-based. And it's all about chasing the money. And every bit of money that you get means there's less for me to get. So we're at odds with each other. Hell of a way to run a society. It is. So I was wondering, does the local money system lend itself to loans? I mean, can somebody buy a house in the local monetary system? And in the same way, can somebody get into a lot of debt in this local currency? And how does that resolve when somebody is in debt and they can't pay their local currency debt? Boy, you've got some big problems there. Sort of like asking somebody, look, is the world flat or round? Now, if a person believes the world is flat, then they know that if they walk to the edge, they're going to fall off. So you can't persuade them to go far from home. Right. If they're in a round world, they have come to terms with the idea that gravity is an inward function. It sucks as inwards. It doesn't just go up and down. It comes in. And the two understandings are totally different. A similar thing happens around money. The word debt, for instance, does not appear any productive side of our documentation. We sometimes refer to it in saying debt does not happen here. And what do I mean by that? If you give me a loaf of bread and I say I'll pay you later, that's a debt, right? I've got the bread. You don't got anything yet. And you're waiting for me to come up with the cash so that I can pass it on to you. Now, if on the other hand, you give me a loaf of bread and I give you a local buck, you are paid. Now, the fact that I'm negative doesn't mean I owe you anything or indeed that I owe the community anything in any particular way. Rather than in a general sense, the community has one of my dollars floating around in it, maybe a hundred of them. If I go deeply negative, it might be a thousand of them. Uh, small system. A thousand bucks is a big, biggish number. In a community currency system where a person goes negative, their negative account means basically that the money they have issued has been paid to somebody else. So even if I'm a thousand down, the thousand that I've paid to people, 
the mechanic, the dentist, the baker, whatever, is in their hands and is being transacted around. And it's a curious phenomenon that I could be minus a thousand and leave town or die or something like that. And nobody in the system might ever notice because the money that I put into circulation is being passed around and it's affecting transactions and trade between the people who are still there. Sort of like if you take a bunch of kids onto a playing field to play soccer and one of them says, listen, I don't like this, I'm not playing. The worst thing you could do is make him play. Best thing to do is say, fine, and play around him. Now, inside a mutual credit currency system, which is one of these simple networks where I go up, you go down, backwards and forwards, just a network of up and down accounts. Inside one of those, if some account freezes, either positive or negative or bang in the middle, if it stops being a pathway on the network, it makes no difference to the rest of the network that they can just work right around it. Just like on the football field, we go around the kid who doesn't want to play. So you're saying that if someone goes heavily into the negative in the system, people would just not interact with that person in the currency system anymore? That's the first thing that happens is that it gets generally realized that Jim has taken a lot of advantage and isn't put much back in yet. Now, the 14th time he comes to the well, people just don't notice him and ignore him and tell him to bugger off. So... Though he still needs to get his bread. And if he keeps coming to the baker and to the well to get those resources, how do you ignore him? Well, you don't ignore him. What you do is you, you point out to him that his method of getting the bread is to start honoring some of the promises he has issued. And this is quite simple because the promises he has issued are in this community. So there's plenty of people for whom he can provide work and services. Now, contrast that with Joe owes his neighbor a thousand bucks in cash. Where is he going to get the cash from? That's still the competitive economy. And he borrowed the money. He spent it. It left. So there's no money around that's loyal to him that can support him in redressing his balance. Whereas in one of these community currencies, if he is at all willing, there is no problem with him earning some money. Now, if he's got an obscure or trivial skill that nobody really wants, he may have to change his skill base and become something more productive, something more acceptable inside the community. But the real point is that money that he can earn back is there and cannot leave the community. So there's no excuse for him basically not joining back in and fulfilling. But the sweet point is that neither is there an urgency for the community to go and beat him up to make him participate. But in our conventional economy, there is. If I defect on a debt or a loan or something, then the law courts come down, the bailiff's chasing me, lots of time and energy is spent you know, reacquiring my car and furniture or something like that. You know, a huge amount of stress and effort just to make sure the books are kept balanced and we've punished the evildoer or whatever. In the community currency, if somebody is stupid enough to take one slice of cake and run for the hills, then they only get one or two slices. And frankly, it's a good way of finding out who's an idiot and not so much ostracizing them as, uh, I don't know, filtering them in the community. This is, you see, we, we have lots of concerns. People always say, yeah, but, yeah, but, you know, the easy rider, the freeloader, the people who cheat, the frauds, the exploiters. Curious thing is, we don't find them in community currencies. They just don't seem to happen. 
See, our monetary systems work on looking back over our shoulder at what we've collected, what we're carrying on the asset side, and making damn sure we don't lose any of it. So when I do a trade with you, I want to end up with at least as much as I had before I, before I did the trade, either in goods or money. And it's all based upon the past and what we've accumulated. And have I accumulated enough to make a bid on what you've accumulated and so on? With community currency, it's about what futures are available to us through the network of give and get and our experience of the skills and the flow around that we've achieved. You see, in, in a normal currency, the problem is that my self-interest is generally inimical to the community. What works for me may screw the whole lot of you. Well, that's too bad. That's the way the world works. If I can pull it off, you suffer and I win. Hey. But inside one of these community currencies, it's, it's very different. The only way you can pursue your self-interest is when you can do a transaction with somebody else who is equally interested, consensual to the process. No coercion, no pressure. How can you exert pressure with community money? I mean, I can bully you with a thousand conventional dollars if you're poor. I can get you to do all sorts of damn things for a thousand bucks. But with community currency, where everybody's already in the float and has the room to play, you offer me a, a thousand bucks to do something that I find distasteful or unpleasant or immoral or whatever, and I'm going to say, sorry, mate, I don't want to play that game. I have choice. So it's not focused around the growth paradigm then. It's a, it's a lot more focused on the humanistic paradigm of humanity, right? Well, even simpler than that. It's breathe in and breathe out. And it'll balance up. Our conventional economy wants us to breathe in, breathe in, breathe in, breathe in, breathe in, get some more in there, breathe some more. You know, it's, it's, all, it's all one directional. And then you turn around and spend, spend, spend. You know, it goes the other way. But the impetus is always on this urgency, the necessity, the, the carrot and stick economy. Well, inside a community currency, the carrot is very gentle and the, the stick is soft as, it's nothing. You know, there is no coercion. And when there isn't coercion, compatibility, conviviality show up. The world changes. People, people are more generous, not just with their spending, but with the services they provide when people spend on them. So if I'm doing your garden or fixing your roof or something, I'll probably do a better job when you're paying me in community money than when you're paying me in federal dollars. Gone are my blues and gone are my tears. I've got good news to shout in your ears. The long-lost dollar has come back to the pole. With silver you can turn your dreams to gold. Oh, we're in the money. We're in the money. We've got a lot of what it takes to get along. We're in the money. The sky is sunny. Oh, man, depression, you are through. You've done us wrong. Oh, we never see headline about red line today. And when we see the landlord, we can look that guy right in the eye. Oh, we're in the money. Come on, my honey. Let's land it, spend it, send it rolling around. Rigging scandal has rocked the world of finance. Several banks are under investigation, a hefty fine has been handed down, and there have been top-level boardroom departures, most notably that of Bob Diamond, the now former chief executive of Barclays, along with other scandals from the mis-selling of complex derivatives to massive IT system malfunctions, the banking system is well and truly in the spotlight, facing the full forces of political frustration and rising public anger. It's a banking term that few people have heard of and even fewer will know much about, but one which impacts on many people's lives in one way or another. LIBOR, 
The London interbank offered rate is a measure of how much banks have to pay to borrow short-term loans from their rivals. It's worked out every day from estimates submitted by the major banks of their own interbank lending costs. The rate each bank must pay reflects their rivals' perception of its financial strength. Many people rely on the LIBOR interest rates for their mortgages, for uh, borrowing money, and other people have contracts out on these LIBOR interest rates. So it is vital that this, uh, this, this interest rate is correct. The price of trillions of financial transactions made every day around the world is set according to LIBOR. Among them, financial swap deals worth more than $350 trillion. And according to the British Bankers Association, loans totaling more than $10 trillion. So the suggestion that LIBOR may have been manipulated could already have caused very serious consequences. Uh, this has been done before with other indexes. For example, it was done with energy pricing indexes in the United States because the index is created by what the companies report, in that case, to Platts. And, of course, the industry stands to gain by creating a fake price. I'm going to go to the most important news of the week, and that is that uh, Tom Cruise and Katie Holmes are getting divorced. Oh wait, no, I think my brain's been hijacked by CNN and MSNBC and CNBC. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, Rosemary Baby Part 2. Someone call Roman Polanski. Well, I'm talking about Matt Taibbi's latest piece. He says, why is nobody freaking out about the LIBOR banking scandal? And he said he turns on the news and the biggest story is Tom Cruise and Katie Holmes and the fact that Katie Holmes can now wear high heels. Not one single mention of the rigging of global interest rates by Barclays and, and the Bank of England and perhaps the Labor government. Well, this is the heart of the scandal going back to the 2008 collapse, but going back even further than that because the central banks are now implicated in working with banks like Barclays and the other primary dealers in rigging interest rates. And they rig interest rates down. Uh, a theme that we've hit on this show, hit upon during this show many times, is that you've got a war between speculators versus savers. Speculators want low interest rates because they want cheap funds to speculate and their bets go bad and the government forces the losses onto the many in terms of austerity. Savers are constantly being penalized. They're constantly underwriting the speculators. This proves now that the central banks are in cahoots with these other banks to further this collusion of interest rate manipulation and rigging to favor the speculators. And the people who are unaware of this or don't take umbrage at this are people who feel like they're benefiting and somehow by having a kleptocracy of central bankers run their lives until such time as they get thrown under the austerity bus. Central banks create money, uh, you can say, and commercial banks create credit. The last three years since September 2008 have seen the largest money creation and credit creation in history. And yet prices have not gone up at all. That is, consumer prices have not gone up. Since 1980, wages in the United States have drifted downwards for 30 years. But there's been an immense inflation. What has gone up is the price of real estate, the price of bonds, the price of stocks. So the result is that the value of wealth 
and most wealth is held by the wealthiest 1% of the population, wealth has gone way up relative to wages. The result is a new kind of class war. It's not the typical class war between employers and employees. It's a war of finance against the economy. Nowhere in the textbooks do you find a relation between the credit supply and asset prices, real estate, stocks, and bonds. And yet 99% of the credit spent in the United States economy is spent on these financial claims. Every day, an amount equal to the entire year's gross national product passes through the New York uh, Monetary Clearinghouse and the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. And in the last uh, 10 years or so, all of the growth of bank lending is to other financial institutions. In the textbooks, there are happy pictures about banks lending to industry to build machines and factories with a smokestack coming out and employing labor. But this is a fiction. This is not what occurs in practice. All of the increased capital investment in the United States economy comes from the retained earnings of corporations, not from banks. And as this de uh, commercial debt has grown, the mortgages, uh, the bank loans to companies, the corporate rating debt, this has loaded down the economy with an enormous debt overhead. We're in the money, oh, I'm on the honey. You're listening to The Extra Environmentalist. Today we're talking with Michael Linton on open money. I can see a lot of people now thinking about precious metals, et cetera, and saying you've got to find some way to tie that to gold. Why would that have to happen or not have to happen? Well, the primary thing that prevents inflation is the person who says, I'm not paying that buddy price. Who do you think you are? You know, the, the first thing that stops inflation is the purchaser. And if there are choices in the situation, that's pretty easy. A person who demands too much or tries to sell his bread for $40 a loaf will find that people are not paying any attention. Because if I spend 40 bucks for that loaf of bread, I've got to earn back 40 bucks by my haircutting or whatever it is I do. And I've got to pay taxis. So the guy who sells his loaf of bread for 40 bucks has probably got a $15 tax bill to face because of his extraordinary incomes. These all tend to sort of normalize people towards a pricing mechanism that feels familiar but a bit more generous. You know, if a carpenter can get 20 bucks an hour in the current market and the current market is suppressed because we're in austerity, recession, cutbacks, the factory's down, this sort of thing, that's why the carpenter's only getting 20. In a good year, he'd be getting 30 an hour. Now, in community currencies, it's always a good year. Now, are you going to say we have screwed up the value of money by paying this carpenter 30 community bucks an hour? Or are you going to say the conventional economy is a crock of nonsense in terms of its way of deprecating value and screwing people to the floor? And this carpenter is a good guy and he did a great job. I think he deserves 30 bucks. And I've got the 30 bucks. Now, in community currency, I do. In federal dollars, I don't. In federal dollars, he gets 20 this thing we found out very quickly in our system was that babysitting in the 
locality at that point was, you know, dollar and a half an hour. It didn't take long before the babysitters realized that five bucks an hour was a much better rate and they deserved it. And frankly, I think they were dead right. I don't think that's inflation. I think it's revaluing people. So there's some subtle ideas around this. The gold bugs, the precious metal freaks, are basically anal and anxious, and they're not actually paying any attention to what's going on. It's the sky is falling fear stuff. It's, it's difficult to give you a short answer to a, a huge question like that, because the very term inflation is vastly misused and misinterpreted. I mean, if the price of gas goes up, is that inflation? It's reported in the media, oh, inflation index has gone up 2%, you know, it was caused by the price of gas or something. That is not inflation, that is pricing, and it has to do with supply and demand. Inflation is when the government pumps or the banks pump too much money around and the numbers just get ridiculous, so the, the value you can purchase for the dollar is depreciated. But that's a fiscal behavior versus an economic or an environmental or a resource behavior, which is changing the availability of particular items that people want. So we've been giving you a bunch of what if questions like what if this, what if that? How come these local currency systems are not implemented and more often all over the world? How come these federal systems of monetary value continue to be the prevalent way of doing business? Look after number one. When in doubt, go with the flow, play with the, the mainstream. Somebody comes up and introduces community currencies. They're always looked at as a very secondary, peripheral, additional thing. The alternate thing comes up and it really becomes marginalized very quickly. Now, when it gets marginalized, the question is, okay, how can we bring businesses into this so that it becomes more background, more broadly available? And then the businesses start looking at it and say, just a minute, I'm not sure I want to be involved in this thing. It looks a little bit rub-a-dub, a little bit for the poor people. And the one thing a business does not want to know is that it's serving the poor people. It wants to serve the rich people, the classy people, the people with disposable income. So there's a sort of a, an aversion to the process. Now, when I started this in, in the 80s, commercial barter systems were turning over about $3 billion a year. And it's now about 10 times that amount. So in the last 20, 30 years, the growth in this form of transaction on business to business has been quite substantial. In fact, it's amazed me that it's not been more because with certain tweaks to the commercial barter network, it could be an extraordinarily productive system. The main one is to extract the entrepreneurial profit making from the very center, which usually gets right in the way of it being effective. But with any new ideas, cultural antipathy, meme propagation is a huge issue. And people are very nervous about doing things that look like they're outside the normality sector, particularly in areas like money. So they tend to be very conservative. Now, what this has led to is that almost all the community currencies in the world that I have heard of, with the exception of maybe the VIR in Switzerland and the commercial barter networks, with the exception of those, they're all running on volunteers, amateurs, and committees. Now, if you think you can run the world with volunteers, amateurs, and committees... The world you're running is not going to be very interesting at all. Until people start looking at community currencies as viable self-financing services, they're never going to go anywhere. Until people can make a living, a real living, a decent living, by being administrators, propagators, developers, salespeople, writing software for, etc., there's no hope. Now, at this stage in the process, the last 20 years have led generally to the idea that community currencies should be granted by the state or philanthropists because they're for poor people who need it and are incompetent. And that's not a good place to come from. But it's unfortunately where most of it's going at the moment. There's not a lot of intelligent thought going on in the community currency movement. 
there is an enormous amount of very unintelligent thought going on. And unfortunately, that tends to dominate the perception that the general public has of the whole process. So I think what is standing in our way at this point is a, a sort of form of collective intelligence. That is that you need to achieve a certain degree of connectivity in a network, 50, 100 people in your locality, your region, your city, who are sufficiently clear about how this works, that they can take it seriously and get down and get funding. We've just started something in Vancouver called Seedstock. Uh, I'm speaking to you now in late May. We just held our opening meeting last Wednesday where about 80 people showed up and we told them that they were there to make money and change or rather to make change with their money. That The purpose of their presence was that they would pass cash down and get the seed stock currency in exchange. The reason that this would be good for them was that, well, that seed stock was issued by community businesses, restaurants, retailers, food services particularly, the urban agricultural sector. And it makes every good sense for Joe Public to buy this money from the good cause that is holding it, because they don't buy it from the business. The business makes a donation to a charity, to a project, a donation in community money. It doesn't cost the business anything. People have got to go to those charities then, buy the money from them so that hard cash goes to the charity, and I've got exactly the same amount of community money that I can spend in the businesses that are obliged to accept it. Now, that simple loop, that's what we call community way, business-backed currency issued through charities that the general public buys it from the charities to create the value in there, invest in your community, and still has spending power to the dollar and can be assured that they can exercise that spending and that they spend it with the businesses that have been good to the community. And fourth, that they are creating a turbulent or a circulatory community currency that previously did not exist. Those are very substantial advantages. And by simply discussing this for an hour or so with the usual entertainments and inducements, $4,000 was committed in one evening. Now, we're running an Indiegogo campaign, indiegogo.com slash seedstock, obviously focused on Vancouver, where people who invest in this Indiegogo, which is a $10,000 target at this point, every dollar they put in, they get Vancouver dollars that they can spend in Vancouver. So it makes the whole crowdsourcing issue a damn sight easier to move. And I would say that what we're doing with this seedstock project is essentially demonstrating lifting ourselves in the air with our own bootstraps. We're not going to the government for money. We're not going to philanthropy. We're not even going to investors. We're going to users and saying, give us a, a lead on this and we can put it together and then you'll have back everything that you put in and more. You know, the, the standard deli dollar concept, the guy wants to start a deli or a restaurant and he pre-sells. You know, if you buy 500 bucks worth of meals from me, you'll be able to have those meals over the next six months because your cash will be the investment that makes it all work. It's a very simple form of crowdsourcing, but one that has never previously been applied to community currencies. So do you see crowdsourcing as the way forward for a lot of community currencies, or is this really the first time it's been tried and we'll see? In general terms, yes. I think that the amount of actual solid investment needed to kick off a substantial community currency is generally between, say, ten dollars and $20,000. And with that, you could have two or three people working Full tilt at it for a month or so. And by that stage, they should have the initial businesses signed up, initial revenue in excess of the borrowing that they started with, the, the first 10, 20,000. 
and they should be in good shape thereafter. In fact, they should be in such good shape that their task is not how do we make this work with the bit of money we've got. Rather, it should be the income just keeps coming in because more and more businesses are joining and it gets easier as it gets on and every business that joins is paying a registration fee in community money, no cash. Again, bootstrapping it from its own virtual money. And the task isn't so much how can we survive with this, rather it's how can we spread this revenue out to employ more and more people in the propagation of the model. It's an embarrassment of riches is what we're anticipating rather than the usual starvation diets of good social processes. I mean, most NGOs underpay people and suffer. And that's the nature of the beast. If you're a non-government organization or a charity, you're not selling anything. You're begging for money to get the job done. And it ends up that everybody's working for peanuts and struggling. Well, there's no reason for a community currency to be in that model. Uh, A well-established currency with the tools that are available now can go from basically zero to positive cash flow in a month or so. I wanted to ask about the banking system and the way that the banking systems in Europe specifically right now are really suffering and everybody is very worried about the health of the banking system and there's some real possibility of banking collapse. Would a banking system collapse be the right time to implement currency like a let system or some kind of complementary currency? Uh, there's no bad time to start a community currency. None. And one should be starting them irrespective of the health, perceived or otherwise, of the banking system. In fact, when there's a collapse going on, it's probably the most difficult time to get intelligent behavior out of people. You know, equivalent to somebody's drowning. They do not want a swimming lesson. They want a rope or a lift and they want out the water. The same thing with these banking crises. They're a catastrophe. And yes, community currencies are a great answer, both to different line on the issue, a different problem solution. And they're also very productive in that they may actually save the banking system. Now, when the central bankers are in deep trouble, as they are, the thing that they actually need is a stabilized economy where people stop, stop putting pressure on the banks. And that may be a very productive component of community currencies emerging at this time, is it may actually stop the banks from completely collapsing. And I, I would approve of that. I don't like banks or banking or conventional money models at all. But at the same time, I'm terrified of the prospect of them falling apart. So we had a question from a listener. One of them asked what your thoughts were on digital currencies such as Bitcoin as far as facilitating local investment and commerce through digital means and digital currencies. Well, you've got to distinguish between the medium that carries the so-called value transfer. Um, and Bitcoin is it's another form of precious metal, the expensive form. You've got to use a lot of electricity to create a Bitcoin, a lot of CPU time. But it does actually nothing of any value apart from providing a degree of anonymity to certain transactional processes. Uh, I think it's a totally useless piece of nonsense, but uh, not a surprising emergence. Uh, I'll never play with it. Never bother me. I don't think it'll have any effect, and it will be swiftly superseded by far more effective forms of creating monetary tools. Bitcoin is not a monetary tool. It's a trivial pursuit. Quote me on that. Also, Alec, our our listener who asked, he wanted to know more about just digital means of propagating currencies in general. Do you have any thoughts on using either computer science technologies or any kind of phone-based technologies to propagate community currencies? 
Absolutely. We have this thing called the internet now, and I can pick up my phone, I can hit an app. It takes me either to the bank or the credit union or my credit card or whatever. It could equally take me to my community currency. It could do it by simply having a link to a mobile laid out web page, which is probably the first way that we're going to see this largely propagating. So yeah, the mechanisms for affecting this are hugely available. But I'd remind you that we started the Let's system with a telephone answering machine, <laughs> little tape jobs. And that was all the technology that we needed to collect transactions that people wanted posted. Now, we posted them through a computer because we were right on the cutting edge. But we could have been doing it in a three-ring binder and a ledger, and it would have been just as, a, as appropriate. The technology is, can somebody issue an instruction for credit transfer to another party through the central organization or the, the process? And the short answer to that is, oh, yes, dead easy, dead, dead easy. So uh, all the facilities are currently supporting stuff, near-field communications, touch-and-go, smart cards. Yeah, community currencies will be available on through all of those platforms very readily, very soon. Yeah, I can see it taking off as like an app or something like that. You know, people passing currencies back on their smartphone, back and forth. Absolutely. Simplest thing you could do. Take Google Wallet, for instance. Google Wallet, perfectly configured for what we're doing. Perfectly. So you were speaking at the beginning of the conversation about the importance of confidence in the money system. And one of the concerns I would think that most people would come across is counterfeit or something that allows people to either digitally or physically with a printed currency, you know, introduce some kind of counterfeit into the system. So how does the let system deal with counterfeiting? Well, in terms of the account base, there's no problem because if somebody misrepresents, the only way to counterfeit in an account base is to misrepresent yourself and say, I'm Justin, pay Michael 400 bucks. But then Justin notices that there's 400 missing that he did not pay, and he says to the administration or to Michael, where the hell did that get to you? And Michael says, damn, I don't know, must have been a mistake, I've got to put it back. Now, if you're going into things like paper bills, which we do as well, the issue then is what is the consequence to the forger or the counterfeiter? What does he gain? Is it worth it? And it's also what are the downside consequences for the system as a whole? Now, when people counterfeit legal tender, there are serious downside consequences because it becomes a hot potato that gets passed around until somebody ends up taking the loss. That's vicious. That's nasty. In our system, however, well, it's a curious thing, and you'd have to be fairly comfortable with the overall structure and ideas of how it balances and flows to realize that counterfeiting just isn't a problem. In fact, in some cases, counterfeiting would be an inducement to a far better economy. I'm not sure I understand. I know you don't. One of the beauty paradoxes of the whole damn thing. You've got to go back to this business of measure rather than mass. We, we tended to think of money as mass, a mass of gold, a mass of whatever it is. I've got it. And when I spend it, it's gone. With a community currency, money is the measure of our interaction. And there's no shortage of measure. And there never should be a shortage of measure. So in a curious way, if somebody over-introduces the currency by sitting down in the basement and printing off bunches of it. It's, um, it's a long time before it would be causing anybody any problem. In the meantime, all it's doing is facilitating exchange. And that is what an economy is, that I'm able to give something to you and you're able to give somebody to something else. Charles Eisenstein's recently published Sacred Economics, and it's a very, very good book in many, many ways. But he draws continually the distinction between money as being inimical to the community, because when you introduce money into primitive societies, of course, it just rots them to pieces in no time, and it erodes the gift process. But what he does not seem to appreciate it 
Is it a community currency organized like a LAT system, a mutual credit, a time bank? Is the realization of gift exchange in a persistent pattern? It allows you to pay it forward and pay it forward and see it coming back. When it comes back, that it becomes persistent, I pay it forward because it comes back. I can do this because it is persistent. So our currencies are the way where a gift economy can be realized rather than just dreamt of, which is frankly all that I hear when people talk about gift economies. So in essence, by printing extra money, fake extra money, you're just giving people extra gifts. By giving gifts, you're propagating the currency itself and making it more prevalent and available. Is that yeah. correct? At some level. Now, of course, if you find out that there were 40 million of these out there, then, of course, you somebody's got away with far too much and whatever. But how did he spend 40 million of these? Just printing them makes no difference. He's got to get somebody to pick them off him. He's got to take the loaf of bread and pass the money. And the rate at which a fraud or a counterfeiter could abstract value from the community is pretty damn low. And does it compare to the extent to which people fraud, cheat, and screw each other at the moment? I really don't think so. The amount of nastiness that goes on in the world at the moment is quite appalling. So given that some people are getting a free right, I don't know who you would be thinking of, but there's plenty of people in this world who are getting free rights. Does it make a lot of damage that some poor guy in a basement is printing some money, community money, and getting a little bit of a free ride, given that the pieces of paper he's putting into circulation are enabling all sorts of people to transact with each other. Frankly, I'm not worried about it much. We are producing some fairly sophisticated notes with holographic seals and hidden this and multi-printing the other and anti-copying stuff on it. But that's only to keep the merchants comfortable because they're scared to death that they'll be hitting lots of dead notes of some sort. And if we assure them that we've got elementary precautions in place, then they feel comfortable about it and that'll be enough. It's just assuring people are comfortable that matters. Could you describe for us how an ideal community way or let's currency transaction chain would happen? Just to kind of visualize for anyone who's listening how they would actually receive this money and then spend it through a business. Well, if it's intended to be a substantial currency system, see, you can start time bank in 10 minutes. You can start a let system in 10 minutes, but it doesn't mean people will be trading with each other for some time. It takes quite a long time for people to feel confident that going $10, $20 into this thing is, is secure and safe. On the other hand, if I can go to my school and buy $500 that will work in 20 businesses in town and thereby give 500 bucks to the school band or the curriculum or the sports team or whatever, which they would not, not otherwise have, and the 500 I've got is assured legally, civil law, an obligation by the businesses that issued it, then it's a fairly straightforward process. So the standard method we are recommending at the moment is get serious, get substantial. I mean, you can play on the edge if you like, and that's fine, but don't expect anything to work at small scale. If you want things to work, and that's really the only reason I can make for doing this, is get solid, get big. Start by finding out whether there are people you know who would buy money from the schools, hospitals, churches, God knows what, environmental movements, various things, if they knew the money they bought would buy them stuff in these stores, these restaurants, these retailers, whatever. So you go around a bunch of people and get a sort of, would you do this if it was there? Then you go to the businesses and say, listen, if we had a bunch of other businesses in this thing, would you join? A sort of a, I will if they will list. And you go around a bunch of appropriate businesses, getting them to conditionally commit to being 
underwriters and issuers of this money. Now, this should not be difficult because basically you're showing them how to have a free line of credit and the money they did not know existed. It doesn't cost them a penny, gives them tax advantages, loyalty, all sorts of things. So by asking a business, do you want some free money? <laughs> you very quickly find out which ones are alive and awake and which ones are still stuck in panic. And sure, most of them are going to be in panic, but you will pick up maybe 20, 30 businesses with between them maybe 100, 200 employees. Now, the donation scale we require of them to kick in is a thousand community dollars per employee. So if you have a hundred in there, you've created a hundred thousand dollars of community value sitting now in the women's shelter, the dog home, the environmental group, the church, the school. And what the consumer is then doing is buying it from those and going around the loop. Now, this is, as far as we can see, the certainly is in our experiences, by far the simplest and most leveraged system available at this point. So our statement would be, do it the community way. Right now, powellrivermoney.ca is perhaps one of the sweetest little uh, sites that gives you a, a clear indication this can be done easily and that there are simple steps. So I'd say go community way, go by developing consensual interest amongst businesses and general public, and then just start. It won't cost you much at all, and then you'll be in the money. So essentially what I would do is I would go to this business with my community weight currency and I'd pay, like, let's say if it was a restaurant, I'd sit down and pay the whole bill in the community weight currency or... Could uh, be. The, if the restaurant was confident that the 2% or 4% of its business that was being transacted in community currencies, that they could afford to carry the cash cost of the food and the taxis and so on that go with it. But more typically, a restaurant will say, listen, to be secure on this, I'm giving you a meal at 50% cash and 50% community money. Now, that works for him, covers his cash base, and it works for you too. So we expect to see restaurants at 50%, grocery stores at 80% cash, 20% community, gas stations. 9010 perhaps but a cinema theater why not 100% if there's a spare seat why not so basically every business that's issuing the money has to specify it's basically its terms of acceptance and our requirement in community way to admit them into the system is that they, that they take it seriously they honor the money a restaurant that says we'll do 90% cash 10% community money we would not even give them a 10 seconds thought they are just scammers so would it change over time if the currency gained momentum? Would that percentage change over time? I'm sure. In fact, the business that says, damn it, I'm taking 100%, will do very well indeed. A grocery store would have a tough time at 100%, really tough. But a restaurant, I think they do just fine. And certainly any artist, physical health, massage, areas like that. If you say, when I have space in my business, I am willing to serve people for community currency – then you will have no space in your business. And is that a good thing or a bad thing? I had a question here from one of our listeners, Kit, and he said that he's establishing some direct trade linkages with microestate farmers for his tea business. And he was wondering what the place was in a let's currency system that could realistically help them because a lot of the time they're in extremely rural conditions, often illiterate. But most of all, they don't have access to a lot of technology. And so carrying out the payments is really challenging. What was your view of how the LET system could expedite the payment and exchange process? Is this inside United States or are we talking international trade? Internationally with China, I believe. This is going to take a little bit more time. The technology is not really a problem. It's no more problem. Can you exchange an email with these people? You know, if you've got that degree of connectivity, fine. 
And it could be done through standard paper transfers in some ways, but that's too cumbersome, really. Now, the difficulty with introducing uh, large-scale trade relations like that is really going to be that it, it needs to be based initially upon the, some strength of economy in community currencies in the both ends of that dialogue that both communities are appreciative of how community currencies can work so that the tea producer in one country and the tea importer in another have both experience of this and can be part of another combination of systems. Uh, this is a bit florid and complicated, and it's not the sort of thing that can be easily answered by voice in such circumstances. Trust me, it'll work, but not just yet. But one of the things it should work at, incidentally, though, is at different pricing. We talk about fair trade when we get I don't know, coffee from Nicaragua. Is that fair? Very, very rarely. We're using a high dollar. They're using a really screwed currency. So we end up getting bags of coffee. And when they want to buy a, a tractor part with the funds that they got for the coffee, it turns out they have to have about six months coffee supply to get one tractor part, you know? So we are not equitable in our foreign exchange, even when we're talking about fair trade. So one of the things we want to see is fair trade between nations, uh, between transactors in different nations, sort of based upon how many hours does it take you to earn a dollar versus how many hours does it take a Kaya in that country to earn a dollar? And some sort of scaling of prices towards labor value, labor time. Those are, those are long-term issues. But if we're talking about fair trade, we've got to be a lot more clear about what we mean by it. And an awful lot of what is considered fair in the Western world is eh, still not that fair to the, the third world at all. What would behaviors in a community currency look like? Would they have different kind of ethical systems, different kind of moral code compared to a modern day economy right now, a community right now? Would they have different ways of thinking about each other? Would they see each other as more value, less value, less risk, more risk? They see each other as much more important, more value. Transactions are a matter of relationship. They're also a matter of confidence and easiness. So generosity, well-being come in. Now, I have plenty of experience with that in many of the systems that I've had experience with. And it's not a thing you can really explain. Uh, and people think, oh, you've got to be kidding. But let me give you an example from a bank strike in Ireland in the 70s. Uh, there were two strikes. One was for about three months and the next for about nine in the, it was a clearinghouse strike, and it meant that the, the banks couldn't pass paper checks between each other and clear off. So basically, the banks closed. And this looked like a disaster for a while until everybody realized that if the banks were closed, you couldn't put a check in or get it out. So they started writing each other checks. Now, for three months, the checks became the money of Ireland. The banks opened again, and of course, everybody ran to the bank to deposit the checks in case they'd been taking bad ones. You know, all worked out. And then the strike began again. And the second time this went on, people got a lot more sophisticated. And particularly a brewer, several brewers, almost all of them, in fact, began paying their staff in denominated checks. So instead of giving you a check for £143, they give you two checks for 50 and two checks for 20 and here's three quid. Because a check for 20 with Arthur Guinness written on it worked in every pub in Ireland. And the consequence of going to that level was that the Irish economy had the best year it ever had in the 70s. There was less fraud, there was less bankruptcy, and there was a hell of a good time was had by all. A lot of money went through the pubs. So historically, there are precedents to prove that an open money system increases people's well-being, comfort, and happiness. So why not?
up our conversation with Michael Linton about the ideas of open money and about community way currencies and let's currency systems. And so joining us to wrap up that conversation and talk more about what's going on here in Vancouver, British Columbia, in regards to implementing a community way currency system is Jordan Bober, who's been working on implementing the seed stock currency here in Vancouver. So thanks for joining us, Jordan. Thanks for having me. Tell us a little bit about the goals for the seed stock and how you're starting to implement that here in Vancouver. Well, the goal for seed stock is really to give businesses in Vancouver a very low risk entry point into open money to bring in as many different types of local businesses into using a local currency and really teaching them what it really means to be part of, of a community currency and how they can be empowered to create currency um, and have it do good things in the community. Ultimately, we don't um, we don't want to and we don't expect Seedstock to have a monopoly on community currencies or, or any kind of exchange system other than the Canadian dollar in Vancouver. We want it to show people what is possible and that they can use the exact same principles to create other forms of currency for other purposes and on different um, scales as well. So with this conversation we had with Michael, the thing that just kept popping up in my mind is why don't more people realize that this solution has merit? Why is it that this solution is not the first on the list of every person who wants to fix the economy's list? Well, in a way, it's uh, this belief that it could be so simple. John Kenneth Galbraith, an economist, he, he wrote in his book about money that the way in which bankers create money is so simple that the mind is repelled. You know, you can you can tell as many people as you like that money is being created by banks literally at the stroke of a keyboard and nobody really believes that or, or people might kind of believe it intellectually but then there's still some kind of disbelief in their mind like they still think that no, there's got to be something more real about the money that we're using. Government's got to be involved in there somewhere. Well, it's it's not. And the fact is, it's very simple the way that banks create money. And it can be just as simple for anybody else in any community to make money and to have, actually make it in a way that serves the community. It takes a little bit of, you know, a little bit of effort to overcome that hurdle of disbelief that most people come across when they first hear about this concept. So the only reason that people, more people don't realize that they can make their own currencies and make their own kind of game more or less mm-hmm. is that they are so bought into this narrative that is sold to us and sold to our, our culture that they just can't see past it. Is that what you're saying? That's right. And also that they have seldom ever posed themselves the question to begin with. What is money? Where does money come from? Money is a very practical thing for most people. It's as long as they know what they can spend it on, that people will accept it, you know how they can earn it. Those are the things that people are really focused on and they don't stop to look at the whole system perspective of, you know, what is money? How does it come about? You know, does it need to work this way or can it work a different way? I find in talking to children, actually, because <laughs> I've, I've spoken about money to, um, to, to children and teenagers as well. And a lot of times they tend to get it much faster 
they tend to understand these concepts much faster because they haven't had uh, as much time to take these things for granted. As you're going around in Vancouver and talking to people about this seed stock currency, what are the responses that you've been getting from various groups? Have some groups been more positive and others been more negative or some groups more excited and others more apathetic? What's kind of the response you've been getting? Well, actually, we, we haven't had really any negative reaction so far to seed stock. There's been a lot of excitement and, you know, there's some people that just that, you know, don't really get it. And, and so they kind of might be a bit dismissive of it. But on the whole, people are getting really, really excited about this. And they oftentimes they, they get really excited about it without even fully understanding how it all works. They can see what the currency is going to do in terms of creating connections that are being overlooked right now. Taking some of this capacity that we have in our business community and in our people, just in terms of underutilized skills, talents, time, passions, and, and actually putting that to work for each other and for community causes. So people can understand that. They can see that there's a lot of low-hanging fruit that's just going to waste, and they know that something's not right. So you really see it as a way to deal with underemployment, people who really have these talents but aren't able to put them to use? Yeah, underemployment and misemployment. I mean, people that have a lot of good they can offer their community but are working in jobs that don't uh, develop them at all and, and are, frankly, often producing things that other people don't really need. So I think the more we can get people making a living while living in alignment with their values and expressing their gifts and, and skills, the more wealthy we'll be in a very real sense, not just a material sense, but also a, an emotional sense as well. In your opinion, what, what do you think separates community currency from other currencies? Well, first of all, there are many different types of community currency. Um, so it's, it's kind of hard to paint them all in the same brush. I mean, I can tell you stuff that would separate seed stock from other community currencies being done around the world as well. Well, the main differences between seed stock and the Canadian dollar is, uh, first of all, that seed stock is created endogenously within the community. So by the community, it's backed by the businesses that are there. It's something that stays within that community, so it goes round instead of going in and out. It doesn't leave the community. You know, somebody earns community currency, then they will spend it on somebody else in the community. So it, it keeps it going round. And it keeps people looking for those other people in their neighborhood who might be able to help fill some of their needs instead of automatically, you know, looking on the Internet for, you know, something that you can get from halfway across the world. And the way in which it comes into existence is also extremely important because right now with the Canadian dollar, most of it is being created, as I mentioned earlier, by banks. And there's a tremendous advantage to being the first to create money and spend it. And we don't always approve of the way that the banks are spending this money. It's, I mean, it's for private profit. And a lot of times it's, it's employed very destructively. With seed stock, the money, as soon as it's issued, it's being donated to local nonprofits that could really use the resources to help make a more livable future. And so it's, it's really using the power that money has for something that the community really needs um, and that's going to make a difference. How is it that you go in and you sell this idea to businesses here in Vancouver that they should be participating? Well, the, the easiest thing is to show the businesses that, look, you have this, this excess capacity 
in your business. And I mean, let's take the example of a restaurant. You know, there, there are often tables that aren't being filled by anybody. And a lot of restaurants will turn to various discount programs like coupon books or, or the entertainment book, for, for example, or, or Groupon to try to get somebody to come in, cover their costs and fill that seat. Now, what we can demonstrate with seed stock is that um, it's actually the, the, the worst case scenario with seed stock is actually better than the best case scenario that you'll get out of a coupon because you're able to attract customers to your business, have them still cover whatever your Canadian dollar costs are. So in a restaurant, we would say take up to 50% payment in seed stock and the rest in cash. So you're covering your costs, you're getting a customer coming in through the door, and you're not giving a discount. So it's not, we're getting out of this kind of race to the bottom where every business is, is trying to discount price of its services relative to their competitors to attract customers. You're attracting customers that have an affinity to your type of business, which is a business that's community-minded, it's, um, it's trying to be part of a new local economy, and it's giving back to the community. So it's, it, it's not a discount. It's, uh, it's, it's money that you're earning that can be re-spent by your business in ways that have value. How would I go along and convince somebody who's been earning their whole life, who's been going to their job, working that nine to five for their entire life, bringing home that paycheck to pay for their mortgages, to pay for their groceries, to pay for their kids' college education? How do I convince them? that they should switch over their maybe some of their income to a seed stock or a local community currency. How do I start making that pitch to somebody to convert over to these these things that, you know, in a lot of their minds might be a, a made up currency or a made up thing? Well, for, for most people, we're not asking anybody to switch over any of their income from Canadian dollars to seed stock. Seed stock is, it's kind of a complementary currency. So so income that you earn in seed stock is going to be, for most people, over and above what they might earn otherwise in, in just the regular status quo Canadian dollar economy that we have right now. So these restaurants, for example, we're not asking them to change over any of their, their cash flow into the seed stock to sort of displace what they're already earning in Canadian dollars. We're saying, look, that table is empty. Now, what if we can, we, what if we can get somebody else sitting at that table, paying you half in Canadian dollars and half in seed stock. You know, that's money that, that would never have come into the business otherwise. And they're doing that without giving a discount and they get to support um, these local community causes, which they may never have felt that they had the ability to support before. So from, from the business perspective, it's, it's a very attractive proposition. From the perspective of, of uh, an individual who's maybe employed at a business, so they're not earning seed stock, we would want them to exchange some of their Canadian dollars with a nonprofit that's received a seed stock donation for seed stock. And the proposition for them is you, you can support these causes that you believe in, you still get money that you can spend at all these local businesses, and you're actually helping at the same time to build this pool of money that circulates within the community and builds a, a stronger local economy. So for people who, who want to support causes, and who want to help build the stronger local economy, seed stock is a really great proposition. If, if somebody doesn't care, care about either of those things, well, then there's not much point. But we think there's enough people that care about those things in Vancouver that, that will have no problem converting the money. I'm wondering about the actual steps to getting this off the ground. You're coming up on a launch here in mid-August, I think, is when you're planning to launch. And once right. you actually get to that point, 
how do you hit the ground running? What are those first steps to get the currency out the door into people's hands? Well, what we're doing um, over the next few weeks here is uh, we've been uh, circling back to businesses and also making contacts with new businesses that are interested in using Seedstock. And we've got a bunch of businesses conditionally enrolled. So basically means that in, in a couple of weeks, we'll go back to them. We'll show them the network that we've built up of other willing participants. And they're still still in and we'll find them up officially. Then we're getting the money designed actually over the next few weeks as well, including at an art show that we're holding. So we're calling on local artists and designers to help design one side of each of the different denominations. We'll get that money printed and it will be ready to distribute in mid-August to the the businesses that are issuing it, to the nonprofits that they're allocating their issuance to, and also to some of the people who have been pre-purchasing seed stock from the project as a way of bootstrapping the project. We've already pre-sold over 9,000 seed stock to the public. So. Wow. How do you spread this to other communities? How do other communities who would like to replicate the seed stock community currency in their own community, how does that translate into their community? Well, first of all, the best way to help other communities replicate what we're doing is to ensure that what we're doing is replicable um, as, as much as possible. So we've been very careful about doing this in a very grassroots way. So not going out and, and seeking you know big grants to be able to do this. We're using the same mechanism by which the, the currency will work to raise money for nonprofits to, to actually um, raise the funds to create the currency and to, and to run it. So that's that's already the first step is creating a replicable model. And then secondly, you know, once we're up and running here and, you know, have some time to, to sort of breathe, <laughs> we, we do want this to be replicated in other cities around the world. And we would be extremely happy to provide information and support to other communities that would like to do something similar. Because this is a nonprofit enterprise. We're not in it to try and, and corner a market or, or make a monopoly. It's really about changing the way money is understood and used everywhere on, on a large scale. So that really is part of the mission, is, is ensuring that it propagates beyond Vancouver. So how can people in other communities around the world find out more about how the seed stock is progressing and more about these uh, community way currency models? I would recommend go to our website at uh, seedstock.ca. And uh, if you sign up to our newsletter, you'll receive regular updates about what's happening in seed stock. You can get even more updates if you um, go to our Facebook page, search under Seed Stock and you'll find us or, or via our website. And if you want to learn more about the Community Way model, um, I also recommend communityway.ca, which is a website for the first Community Way model that was uh, ever implemented in the Comox Valley in British Columbia. Standing on the top of a parking lot, I gave it all my head, show me what you got, there's some things I
thanks to Jordan for joining us to talk about some of the plans for the seed stock and actually putting these community way currency models in action here in Vancouver. And so, Seth, I'm wondering what it would be like for people in North Carolina in your community to jump on board with one of these complementary currency systems. Do you see it happening? I do see it happening, Justin. And I think that my community is already implementing some of these currencies currently. I live near a community called Pittsburgh, and they've implemented the Plenty, which is an alternative currency where they use in their local businesses. And you can exchange them pretty much just as you would a normal currency uh, denomination. And they have been using this for a long time already. It's It's been, what, like maybe 10 or 15 years since, since they implemented the, the, the Plenty. And yeah, it's, it's gone really well here. I think it's really one of the key methods of innovation into the future. And we talked about innovation on our last show with Sandra Fonderloo. And as we spoke on that show, one of the core areas for innovation in the future does have to do with our money system. And I would hope that more people who are looking at you know, startups and are involved in producing software and apps and things, start looking into ways to actually enable these local transactions, these monetary systems. And, you know, it's it's pretty cool. It's It really is innovation in action. And on our last episode, we spoke with Amy and Larry on Salt Spring Island. And one of the things that they said after we wrapped up our conversation, I didn't have our mic running, but Larry said that he really saw all of this economic collapse issue. He really sees it coming and it's going to be really difficult. But one thing that he's learned by living off the grid is that people can find ways to adapt and it's not going to be as bad as perhaps some people think because there are these models of local currencies and there are these models of local economies that we've used for a really long time in the Middle Ages, in ancient civilizations. And this was the economy that people used to have. And they knew how it worked and that's how it operated. And so we're going to find ourselves shifting over to those methods, to those models, as the globalized system that we're used to falls apart. And while it is going to be painful and it is going to be difficult over the next few years as this transition happens, it's also not going to be the end of the world. As communities start to fragment and as states and nations begin to not be able to maintain the infrastructure that we're, we're accustomed to today, these local currencies are going to become more and more prevalent as people begin trading meaningful goods with one another. When I'm actually handing somebody a hammer and they're handing me some of this local currency that's going to be good for a service later in the future. And doesn't have to be regulated or, or issued by a government. This is something that goes between people, goes between neighbors, goes between individuals. And it's easy to maintain. And it's something that is sustainable in a non-industrialized society or in a less industrialized society. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that Michael Linton brought up the point that what people are most scared about is being thought of as silly. And even though people are very silly and we're taking for a ride regularly in so many different ways, what really keeps people from jumping onto a community currency system and using it more commonly is the idea that other people might think that they're silly. And so the more that we can help to cultivate that culture of, you know, these things aren't silly, these things aren't a waste of time, then the more people are going to jump on board and want to use these systems. So many people in our society have bought into the fact that money does exist in the way that it currently does. Because it seems to be just an arbitrary system 
of exchange that has developed. And just because the elites adopt it and because rich people adopt it because it benefits them, it becomes reality. And that that's the secret here, I think. So another point that I thought was interesting was when Michael Linton was talking about getting off the lifeboat mentality, getting away from the, you know, the sky's falling, you better come to something that works while you still have time to do it because everything's hitting the fan. I think that kind of dialogue really turns people off. And there's been people who've seen what's coming for, you know, a decade and many more decades in larger terms, but more specifics have been talked about for really like the last five and 10 years of how the whole issue of, you know, limits to growth and peak oil and peak everything are going to play out. But a lot of the dialogue has been, you know, like shit's hitting the fan. It's really terrible. The whole system's falling apart. And it's really prevented, I think, a lot of people from jumping on to meaningful alternatives. But one thing that's really shifted for me in the last six months to a year is no longer talking about the collapse of the global economy, but the fact that the global economy is collapsing. If you look at any of the economic indicators around the world, whether you know it's ISM or PMI numbers, talking about different purchasing indexes and industrial services and manufacturing, they're all contracting. And over 80% of the world's nations, the manufacturing is in contraction right now. And when you look at the ways that global banking systems are threatened, the global economy really is collapsing. And there's some communities that are riding out a bit better than others. But, you know, in six months, in 12 more months, it's really going to feel like it's everywhere. And even here in Vancouver, the housing bubble here is bursting. As we spoke to with Nicole Foss back in February and had on our episode number 38, we talked a little bit about the Canadian housing bubble. And no city in Canada is in more of a housing bubble than Vancouver. In fact, perhaps no city in the world is in more of a housing bubble. And even in just my little neighborhood, there's tons of vacancy signs and tons of for sale signs as people are moving out. And the level of unaffordability in housing has really reached its peak. And so many people are moving away because of the Canadian housing bubble. And if you talk to any realtor in the community, they're saying, you know, there's tons of properties up, but nothing's really moving. And that's really different from Vancouver. And so that's definitely one of the ways that we're seeing here locally that that the failure of the global economy is really playing out. Yeah. And housing markets are just it's one of the leading ways that the economy shows us that it's no longer what it used to be. Justin, I was wondering if you've seen any other kind of indicators in your community that these kind of things are happening and the stuff that we see in Greece is not just isolated to Europe. The thing in Vancouver is that there's a lot of tourism that comes through here because it's a stunningly beautiful area, you know, mountains and beaches and things. And a lot of people from Europe come through here and rent out places over the summer or come and visit the beaches. And the level of tourism here has clearly, clearly dropped off. There's tons of little businesses in my local neighborhood that are going under or moving and lots of for lease signs up on businesses and as Nicole Foss said, once again, what happens is when your housing bubble collapses, the area gets hollowed out. And that's really what's happening is a lot of businesses are going under. And it's not so bad where it's like every storefront is empty. That's not the case at all. But you just see more and more businesses going down. But going back to one point that you brought up earlier, people participate in the system because they just think that this is the way it's supposed to be. And one really great thing that we had 
uh, some clips on during the conversation with Michael was about the LIBOR scandal. And I don't know how much play it's getting in the U.S. It's not really getting a lot of play here in Canada. But to know that one of the world's most important financial numbers that determines $800 trillion of the global economy is being manipulated through these backdoor conversations with all of these uh, bankers and people in London and people who are managing the global economy just shows you how completely ridiculous all of this is. And so I'm just wondering why people participate. You know, why do they still put their money into the stock market? Why do they still put their money into retirement savings plans that are playing as part of this global speculative game? And there's absolutely tons of evidence that anyone can pull up to show how unfounded the system is and how silly all of these numbers truly are. I think there's a couple reasons why people do participate in these systems. And the first is that they really don't give it a lot of thought. They, this is the way it's always been. This is the way their parents have taught them to, to live. And, you know, the society has taught them to live. And two is they don't even know that there's an alternative to the system as it is. There's no viable systems of alternative ways of living that show up in our daily media, that show up in the newspaper, that say that the average American who watches six and a half hours of television a day doesn't turn on the television and see an alternative way of going about their daily lives that doesn't involve capitalistic exchange. And the nine to five job is something that's very basic in so many people's lives. Our schooling system doesn't show these these opportunities for people to change the way of thinking. And if you're not teaching kids from the, from the very early age, then it's going to be really tough for people, for adults who have grown up in these ways of thinking to make those switches to alternative currencies or to move away from the consumer lifestyle of having a, an enormous house with eight cars and all the stuff that goes along with that. It's tough to, to move away from your addiction to oil or your uses of electricity. I mean, I'm sitting in, in North Carolina right now. It's 100 degrees outside which is extremely warm. If, if nobody has been in North Carolina during the summer, the humidity is incredible. And if it wasn't for electricity and air conditioning, I would not be a very happy person right now. I would be in a lot of sweating pain. And you know, it's hard to move away from the fact that I'm sitting in an air conditioning environment. It's very nice to have a chilled drink to sip on. And Entertainment inside of my air conditioning box is a very luxurious thing to have. So moving away from those luxuries is, is a tough thing for people to swallow. Most people just want to, you know, pay their bills and eat their food. And, you know, as long as the monetary system provides those things, they'll be okay and not really look for alternatives all that much. But the U.S. is in very dire straits at the moment because of its corn crop being absolutely decimated by these record temperatures. And so those dollars may not buy that same amount of food that you've been used to in the next few months. But going back to what Michael was talking about and Jordan was talking about, I think that if banks can create money, why not us? Why not create money ourselves and figure out these ways of creating and exchanging values within these communities. And as Michael said, you know, Charles Eisenstein talks about having these gift economies, and he really sees these community currencies as persistent ways to actually create a gift economy. And so I'm hoping that we can really find some very robust and widely used ways to implement community currencies. And so I hope that these community way currency models can be a part of that. 
And alternative ways of, of currency lead me to think about alternative ways of communication. And we did have a lot of communication to the show this week, Justin, didn't we? Yeah, we've had a lot of emails coming in, as, as always. We heard from, from Greg in Australia, and he said, hey, why don't we make some blog badges? So, Seth, you whipped up some blog badges, you put them on our website, and now if you have a blog, if you have a website, and you listen to The Extra Environmentalist, there's many different options for you to throw a blog badge up on your site to show people that you are tuning in and listening about these different ways of organizing society. That's right. If you feel that you are an extra environmentalist at your very core, and you want to show the world that you too listen to The Extra Environmentalist and say, hey, check out the show. Listen to Justin and Seth talk about these crazy ideas. Put the banner up on your blog, put it up on your website, put it up on your mom's website and you know, let the world know. We also heard from Chris in the UK who told us that he's listened to our Steve Keen episode about five times, right, Justin? That's probably even more times than we've heard it editing through it and listening to it. He's got to know all the questions by heart by now. I, yeah, I, definitely. I'd be sure. But that's, that's <laughs> a, it's a really intense interview, and it probably needs five or six times to really absorb some of the things that Steve has to say. And, and not to mention that Steve talks pretty fast. It's great to hear that someone could listen to one of our interviews so many times and still get more information out of it. But just to give you an idea of how much preparation goes into those interviews, it was like two days before that interview was getting ready to happen. And I had not even started debunking economics, Steve Keen's book. And so I had to read through that entire book in a day and a half. And so I just blocked off a whole afternoon and read through it and made notes. And preparing for these interviews are not easy, but it's worth it because we're really able to cover some in-depth topics. And we feel that these are viewpoints that are not really discussed at depth anywhere else to the kind of depth that we hope that we're providing. And so it, it's great to know that you know some people can find enough depth in the interviews to listen to them five or more times. That's right. David calling again. I just wanted to record a little bit of this uh, article, particularly the part about how these people believe that collusion is an effective way. Uh, I quote, the men and women who run these corrupt banks and brokerages genuinely believe that their relentless lying and cheating and even their anti-competitive cartel style scheming are all legitimate market processes that lead to legitimate price discovery. In this lunatic worldview, the bid rigging scheme was a system that created fair returns for everyone. Have a good day, guys. Thanks for calling in, David, and talking about some of the beliefs that people who are running our financial system are working on. And that's one of the things that I hope we can get across through our show is that the people who are running the system, they're really operating on some core false assumptions about human nature and how society should operate. And it's leading them to think that a lot of their actions are actually part of a natural system. And even if more and more people are waking up to that now, over the last few decades, that's what we've been operating with. And that's what we've been living with as these banking systems, as the global financial system has developed. And so it's created this really distorted system. And so thanks for calling in and bringing it up. And Seth, I know that we have a new post on our blog from Louisa about the system, about the Wall Street governance, about the ties between the financial sector and our government in the United States. That's right, Justin. And people can find more interesting 
articles and things to, that we write on our blog over at extraenvironmentalist.com slash blog or just typing in blog.extraenvironmentalist.com, which is our new redirect over to our blog. Louisa puts out all sorts of interesting posts about things such as the voicemail that David just left. And you can read about those things. You can repost them to your Facebook and share them with everybody. So David left us a voicemail, as have other listeners. And so if you were affected by some of this extreme heat, or maybe you spoke to someone in your community who didn't believe in climate change before, and now they do because of this extreme heat, or maybe you lived without power in the northeastern U.S. or the Midwest U.S. from the crazy superstorm that came through recently, and you like to share some of your experiences of how your community adapted to living without the electricity that it's so used to, call in on our voicemail number. And what is that, Seth? And that number is plus one because we're in the United States, uh, 919-701-9872. And 9872 is actually XTRA on your touchtone phone. So please call in, leave us a voicemail message on that any time of the day or night. It is an automated message machine, so you will not wake us up. You can also alternatively leave us a message on Skype, which we can also use to play back on the show. Yeah, which is what David did, and you can find that by just going to our website, scrolling down under our donate links, our Gmail links, and our SoundCloud Dropbox links, and just clicking the little green conversation icon and saying hello, saying maybe something you like or hate about the show, or just sharing an experience in your daily life, or skit suggestions, radio shows that we should parody all kinds of things that you can call in and we would love to hear. So thanks to everybody who's been donating recently. We've been able to take some of those donations and put that towards doing a redesign of our site. So that's exciting and should be out later in the year. And so if you'd like to donate to our show and to use your money to support independent media that we produce, you can find a donate link on our website at extraenvironmentalist.com. And we really, truly appreciate every donation that you send. And if you send us a donation, we'll send you some extra special bonus content that we have from different lectures and different conversations that we've had that didn't quite fit into the show. Not only will we supply you with bonus material, but if your donation is, is over $10 US, we will send you 10 stickers to the location of your choosing. That will come via the U.S. Postal Service. As long as the U.S. Postal Service is not bankrupt. Exactly. All we ask for in return is if you take a picture of the sticker wherever you decide to post it, whether that's on your laptop, if it's on your wall of your Adobe shelter, or on the back of your car. Love to see those stickers being uh, used effectively and helping to spread the extra environmentalist message. So, Justin, we have had these T-shirts sitting in my bedroom for way, way too long. And since nobody really has been forthcoming with a plan to help us get rid of them. Except uh, for Quasi Periodic, who suggested that we ship him some for his field reports. But what we are thinking now, if you send a donation in right now, this is episode number 45, starting from episode 45 on. If you send in a donation of $30 or more. We will supply you with an extra environmentalist t-shirt in the size of your choosing while supplies last. Now, you send in a $30 donation and you want an extra large and we only have extra, extra large, we'll work with you to find a size that we still have available. You can find us on Facebook and join in on the conversation there. And thanks to all the new radio affiliates that have been playing our show. CSGF 
in BC played our show recently, and we're finding some new affiliates across Canada, which is very exciting. So we'll have some announcements. And if you'd be interested in hearing the Extra Environmentalist on your community radio station, put us in touch, let us know what that station is, and we will get in touch. And we will supply that radio station with the links and everything it needs to play our show. So thanks again for listening to another episode of the Extra Environmentalist. We are excited to continue interviewing so many incredible people to talk about the challenges that we're facing at this time as a civilization. So we are looking forward to having you join us for our future episodes. That's right, Extra Environmentalists. So stay cool out there and try to donate platelets as often as you can. President Obama recently gave a speech saying, there is no fraud, it's all legal, that's the free market. The free market has been redefined to be free for the financial sector to grab, to misrepresent. So when you talk about the fraud that has uh, essentially become the basis for making financial money, you have that as the new form, the new economy, without anybody saying it. I don't know any textbook that talks that about how the way to get rich is to steal money. The way to get rich is to borrow money to buy a property that's going up in value and make the economy shrink and grab property from the public domain. Why is it that French novelists like Balzac and poets like Baudelaire understand the economy better than what Nobel Prizes are given in the textbooks that are written today. So instead of learning how the economy operates, students are told how a parallel universe might operate on a different planet if there were no government, if there were no fraud, if the entire economy operated on barter, if there was no debt, and that everybody wanted to help everybody else, that nobody inherited money, that everybody earned all of the income and wealth that they have. The reality is the opposite, but it seems to be talked about only in novels uh, these days. Whenever you have a misunderstanding of reality, year after year, decade after decade, and now for a century, when a false picture of the economy is painted, you can be sure that there is a special interest that's benefiting. A false picture of reality does not happen by nature. It is subsidized, and the banking sector has subsidized a junk economics that is taught in the universities, broadcast from your newspapers, mouthed by the politicians whose election they sponsor, to try to make you believe that you're living on Mars in a different kind of a world instead of the actual country that you're living in, and to pretend that there is no financial class that is trying to grab what belongs to the public at large. This is what ends up with a difference between central bank uh, creation by the government, with the government aims of economic growth and full employment, as compared to commercial bank credit, that aims at economic shrinkage, at austerity, 
at lower wages, at lower output, so that it can do to you what the commercial banks are doing to Greece. To say, give us your ports and your, uh, your land and your tourist areas and your water and sewer systems so we can charge you for water and sewer. And we can take the money that you had uh, expected to get in pensions and we can scale it down so that we can pay ourselves. This is what it took an army in times past. And today it's done without an army as long as you will be passive and believe the science fiction picture of the world that the banks are painting. On the next Extra Environmentalist, Paul Kingsnorth and Michael McGonigal on Exiting Environmentalism. What got me into environmentalism was a very basic and simple and possibly simplistic idea that we have to protect nature from being destroyed by humans and by human industry. And that means that we have to A, stop doing the destruction and B, start working out how to live differently. And within that, there's a huge range of things that you can then talk about and do. But it seems to me that the, the sort of mainstream of the environment movement now has sort of morphed into, almost accidentally, into a group of people whose main aim appears to be sustaining our current lifestyle in the face of things like climate change, rather than sustaining natural systems and the, and the wider natural world. It's become very anthropocentric, very human-centric, rather than ecocentric, if you like. we got to leave behind the past we got to exit the old environmentalism. We've got to leave that behind, which is what I call liberal environmentalism. And we've got to move into a new environmentalism, which takes us out of that system, which exits that system. We exit the old environmentalism, and the new environmentalism helps us exit the liberal system. But yes to Welcome to Gus Glasser Studios in Hollywood, California. Three contestants will have it all if only they know how manipulated the pricing really is. The price is wrong here today, folks. We are going to choose three contestants from the crowd. Butch Smasher, come on down. Betty Roxenschmidt, come on down. Alex Jones, come on down. And the star of The Price is Wrong, Gus Glasser. Hello, hello, I'm Gus Glasser. We've got a fabulous lineup for you here today. Our first product is this loaf of bread. This fabulous loaf of bread has been manufactured to extreme quality control standards. Loaves of bread have been made in ancient civilizations all the way to modern civilizations. It's been part of every fall and every rise of every civilization. And today, you have the opportunity to give your starving family access to this amazing resource. Brought to you from the brand new genetically engineered bread trees, thanks to Matza Santo. Back to you, Gus. So without any further to do, we're going to get prices from all of our contestants. Let's start with you first, Betty. Um, um, I'm, I'm thinking, um... Um, 500! Um, 
I'm thinking um, $15. $15. All right, all right. Let's get our next, the next price on here. Uh, Butch, what's your price? Um, I'm thinking, um, him. I'm, I'm thinking, um, uh, $25. $25. All right, all right. Well, that's great. Let's uh, get Alex Jones. Alex, what's your what's your bid? This whole price is just a conspiracy, and clearly the, the Bilderberg group has been involved in this uprising here, and I, I don't think... Just a price, Alex. Just a price. Uh, $5. $5. All right. We have the contestants, and the winner is... Uh-oh there, Gus. It looks like that bell just indicated quantitative easing five. The prices just tripled. That's right, folks. All of our prices have just tripled, and you can't change your price. So the winner is... Poverty. Poverty. Come on down, Poverty. Wait a second. Poverty wasn't one of our contestants. All right, Butch, you're the winner. Come on down, Butch. All right, Butch. So uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where are you from? I, I grew up in El Paso, Texas, and I never really had many people who accepted me there, but I always watch the show, and I've really enjoyed it a lot, and I'm so excited to be here today. That's great! Our first game is Climbing the Mountain of Debt. Ronnie, tell him what he can win. Well, Gus, it turns out that he can win a brand new mattress. Brought to you by our sponsors at the First National Bank of Mattress. The First National Bank of Mattress gave us this mattress to give out to one of our contestants because they care about your banking needs and they want to make sure that you have plenty of places to stash your winnings. That's right, Ronnie. For our first game tonight, you will be guessing the mountain of debt. How high does the global derivatives bubble go? As long as you overinflate the value, you're going to win. Um, well, I'm, I'm thinking it's maybe, uh, what's that? What's that? Um, Gus, uh, I guess I think I'm, I'm going to go with 1.2 quadrillion. 1.2 quadrillion. Yes, that's my final answer. Yes. Let's see how far this mountain climber can go. Ronnie, looks like the price has reached 2 quadrillion. Uh, that's, that's too bad. I, I guess I'll just have to find another mattress to stash my cash in. It's too bad. Thanks for playing, Butch. Now let's spin the wheel for our showcase gifts. First up, Alex Jones. All right, I'm, I'm going to spin this wheel here, though. I really, really think that this is part of some All right, of Alex, let's spin the wheel. You've landed on mass extinction for the entire human race. Well, uh, that's really the plan for the New World Order masters is what they're planning is some kind of That's mass great, Alex. Betty, you're up next. Go ahead and give the wheel a spin. Okay, okay, here we go, here we go. Oh, okay. Looks like you've landed on three more rounds of quantitative easing. That puts you in the running for our showcase. Butch, let's give it a spin. Okay, okay, I'm gonna see what I get here. I'm gonna see what I get here. Based on that spin, it looks like you're going to have to pay me everything you have in your wallet. But I don't really have anything in my wallet, but I don't really have then any cash. Then you're going to jail. Butch, it looks like you're going to be allowed one conjugal visit, and that's only from Ben Bernanke. I hope you have a great time. 
That's right, Gus. Butch has won an all-expenses-paid vacation to debtor's prison, where he'll have access to the fabulous libraries of financial literacy and 24-7 television. He'll sleep on some of the firmest mattresses possible, brought to you by our partners at First National Make a Mattress. That's right, Ronnie. He will also have a subscription of Forbes, where he can keep track of all the richest and biggest people in the financial world. All right, Alex and Betty, you join us for our showcase today. Ronnie, let's show Alex's showcase. Well, Gus, Alex today is going to be bidding on a fabulous new rundown Detroit factory. This factory comes with decades of fabulous rust that's accumulated on its walls. It's ready to go with only billions of dollars of investment to churn out the latest waste in industrial manufacturing. It also comes with dozens of ready and willing workers with only the application of slave labor tactics who are currently squatting in the building. All you need to round them up are shock collars and this fabulous taser that we'll be providing. That sounds wonderful, Ronnie. I'm sure Alex can't wait to get into his old factory. Let's take a look at Betty's showcase. Betty today is going to be bidding on a fabulous all-expenses-paid trip to an austerity riot in Greece. She will be rubbing her shoulders with only the most experienced austerity riders who are now suffering through 35% unemployment and fabulous bankruptcy. This fabulous all-expenses-paid vacation is a default option for many of the world's richest bankers. Fabulous cuisine includes soup lines and humble pies. And don't worry, Betty, your fair skin will not be harmed by the hot Grecian sun. That's not smog in the sky, that's clouds of tear gas. So you won't even need sunscreen. Alex, we'll start with you. What is your opening bid for this dilapidated Detroit factory? Well, it, it looks like with uh, all these people in here, um, they're about to be enslaved by the New World Order. So Just I'm, a number, Alex, just a number. Uh, uh, 15,000. 15,000, all right. And we roll over to you, Betty. What is your bid for this lovely Grecian vacation? Um, um, I'm, I'm thinking, uh, uh, 18,000. 18,000. Let's head over to Ronnie, see who is the winner. It looks like, Betty, that you went over. But Alex, that means you're the winner of a brand old Detroit factory. Wow, I, I, I've never been the owner of, of a factory before. Uh, it looks like we're That's great, Alex. Thank you so much for playing. Always at a loss for words, you are, sir. This has been another episode of The Price is Wrong. Remember, use birth control to control human population. <laughs>